Welcome to The Compliance Files, brought to you by Compliance Institute. The Compliance Files is a unique podcast series, giving you access to industry insights and key perspectives on how the evolving regulatory landscape is driving change, bringing challenge and opportunity for compliance professionals everywhere. I'm Cathy Jacobs, former president of the Compliance Institute and an experienced compliance professional, and it's a great pleasure for me to host this podcast. In our first podcast on outsourcing, we explored the regulatory framework and central bank expectations. Today, we're going to look at outsourcing from the other side of the arrangement, i.e. from the outsourcer's point of view. So I am delighted to welcome as my guest today, Barry Rojak, Head of Regulatory Compliance and Risk Banking, SaleSense International. Barry is a qualified barrister and prior to joining SaleSense, he was in Ulster Bank for 20 years and the Central Bank of Ireland before that. He is a keen sports enthusiast and is Chairman of Cabin Teeley GAA and a Director of the Irish Sports Museum in his spare time. And Barry has links to the Compliance Institute going back to the very night where the Compliance Institute was set up in November 2002. We were both at that at that meeting. So our connection goes back that far. And so I'm delighted to have Barry talk to us today. You're here to discuss with me today a different perspective than usual for a compliance professional um, in the view of the outsourcer providing support to regulated banks and financial services entities. So thanks for talking to us today. And uh, we'll start um, with a bit about your own background for those who don't know you, Barry, if you could just go through, you know, briefly your career to date. No problem. Yeah, I suppose most of my career has kind of followed the same path as as a lot of clients, fellow professionals over the years uh, that we've seen and unknown. I started off actually on the front line, unusually uh, in financial services way back when, uh, the dawn of the internet, when I was on the front line telephone sales team uh, for the online business internet banking in Bank of Ireland. And um, that was interesting. That was my first sort of exposure to financial services other than as a customer. And um, shortly after that, I, I did a law degree at UCD um, and followed that up with a the King's Inns when that was an evening course. Uh, that was interesting because while trying to figure out how I was actually going to pay for this evening course, uh, I was approached by the central bank with an offer uh, to work for them while they would pay for the course. It would work for them during the day in the regulatory enforcement development department and securities and exchange supervision. And then they would pay for the King's Inns. And that was a really unusual way to get into both law and financial services and compliance all at the same time. Um, and uh, that would have been just over you know, 20, 23 years ago, which sounds very long. I'm sure for your younger compliance people, uh, that seems like an age away, some of them possibly weren't even born, but uh, we, we remember it. <laughs> before the BPFI was the BPFI, it was the IBF, and before the Compliance Institute was the Compliance Institute, it was the, uh, the ACOI. But we, you were still Cathy and I was still Barry, and uh, we yes, were- we were starting our complete careers, yeah. Yeah, and we were starting our careers, and it was uh, it was it was heady days. Um, so after then, after I finished in the Central Bank, uh, the plan was to go down to the courts, and um, I didn't have a, a war chest or a cash cow um, or a sugar mommy or something to uh, rely on to, to to go down and brave being a devil unpaid for a year and then rely on hope rather than expectation for work after that. Uh, so I decided to go into into banking um, in the uh, in the short term. The plan was five years and twenty three three years later. I'm still here, um, and uh, 
Yeah, so uh, Ulster Bank uh, approached me and I joined the Ulster Bank team. And uh, initially, uh, it was sort of more on the conduct and advertising side of things, because uh, back then, really compliance was mainly, as you remember, AML and advertising and, and, and conduct. And that was kind of it with the client money as well, obviously. Um, uh, but then as compliance grew, then I grew as well into that, a large focus on uh, conduct risk, a large, huge focus on upstream as initially the sway the regulation came in to try and stop the boom. And then the sway the regulation had to deal with the fallout afterwards. So upstream is a very big part of that, but it was very exciting on the prudential and conduct side. And then after that, then there was the remediation, um, which uh, many of us have seen across the industry uh, for historic uh, issues that arose. Um, and uh, that then led me to the point where Ulster Bank and KBC and, and others, as you know, were closing down. And I had to have a, a look at my career and where it was going and what I was going to do next. Um, because whether I liked it or not, there was a next coming <laughs> for the first time in my career. The, the bank was disappearing. Uh, so I had to had to see what I was going to do. Um, a friend of mine who was a former uh, a, a, a former banking colleague and uh, was uh, very experienced and is very experienced, uh, approached me about whether or not I might be interested in working for an outsourcer. Uh, and to be honest with you, I hadn't considered it. Um, uh, initially, I wanted to spend some time with my family and I did that. And I would say to all your representatives who are, are working for Ulster Bank or working for KBC and are on the way out, do take some time if you can afford to do it because you don't get that time again in your career. Um, it was a fantastic thing to do. Uh, we did some things we wouldn't have got a chance to do. It was right in the middle of COVID as well. So if I was starting a new job, I would have been going straight onto Zooms and the like, and it would be very hard to build a relationship with new people. I'm sure some of your members have done that as well. Um, so I took a few months out and then I got approached with this and I thought the more I thought about it, the more it made sense. So I guess you were dealing with a company who was, you know, the whole raise on Detro was a positive customer experience. So that would seem to lend itself to positive customer outcomes, um, which I thought was a very uh, positive thing. Uh, I thought there was a huge benefit to bridging the OSP's perspective and the bank's perspective with compliance and regulatory and, you know, fundamental operational banking experience. I thought that, that would be a really good opportunity for myself and for the relevant parties. Um, and I just thought for myself, it would be a fresh and challenging, you know, uh, fresh, a fresh challenge and a different perspective. Um, and so it has proved to be. That was about a year ago I joined and a year on. It's uh, every day is a school day and learning more. And, and uh, But we're a great team here and really, really enjoying it. And as a compliance officer whose head had always been in the banking space, I really didn't know what to expect. So it was quite exciting doing something new. Thanks, Barry. Um, thanks for sharing, you know, what's been a really interesting career arc starting off, you know, in the front line, uh, in the first line, what we call now, although it wasn't that then, and then into, you know, almost a, you know, a, a, a conventional compliance career, if I could call it that. And then like the other side and some really good advice for those who are thinking strategically about their next move, about taking some time out, um, uh, you know, uh, to, to think about it uh, and to give themselves that that space and latitude to do that. So um, thanks for that. Um, could you describe your role today now in a bit more detail and what is the regulatory dimension to that? OK, well. SalesSense itself, the, the business is, is mainly field sales and customer service, okay? So obviously, depending on what OSP you're dealing with, what they will supply will be different. But from my perspective, 
it's very much on the customer engagement side of things, whether that's direct in person or whether that's uh, over the phone or whether that's online, et cetera, et cetera. So, um, and it's not just for financial services, uh, it's for other areas as well. So the legal and regulatory compliance remit and you know the related lexicon um, can be actually wider than a purely traditional central bank role. I'm having to consider different rules and laws and things. Now you're, you're, you're bringing your relevant experience to it. And for the financial services side, it's directly relevant, but it is interesting learning more new stuff. Um, I mean, look, Compliance Ireland is, uh, the Compliance Institute is all, all about continuous development and learning. So yeah. doing that on a practical level, it's every day yeah. is like a school day and work is like a classroom, which is which is very interesting. Um, we have this sort of universal considerations, all compliance considerations that all businesses have. So your likes so of your data protection, your anti-bribery and corruption, uh, your Consumer Rights Act, um, you know, your distance selling requirements, your payments requirements when you're taking receiving payments with customers, all that is fairly sort of standard and universal, and um, but obviously directly relevant to compliance uh, people. Mm -hmm. um, and then in more recent times, and uh, we might talk about it later on, ESG has become a much more important factor. Um, and we're all living through that evolution at the moment, um, which is which is really interesting, um, particularly in the context of like when you're tendering, uh, when, 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 when we're onboarding uh, with a new partner, uh, I'll be very involved in a lot of that. Um, and then in the continuous sort of performing of the role and in reporting, there's a lot of compliance involvement in that as well, as there would be in, in a normal on the other side of defense too. Um, uh, we also, when we're providing services to a regulated financial service provider, there is no diminution in regulatory standards. So your standard requirements will apply insofar as they apply to the operation of the business. So your conduct requirements, your oversight and governance, your reporting, your training, you know, your regular reading and viewing, all those fantastic things, whatever it might be called, they all have a different name in different organizations, but it's the same thing you have to do every six months or three months or once a year. Um, your minimum competency in your fitness and probity is very important. There's a lot of people performing controlled functions and there can be, uh, depending on circumstances of PCF, but most of the time it's controlled functions that people are performing through the outsourcing. So that's a, an obviously relevant part. And then one of the biggest parts, and that's part of the way things are moving at the moment, is around the upstream side of things as well. There's a lot changing that's looking at the supply chain. We might talk about that later on as well. There's a lot changing in the context of, you know, your due diligence you do with your partners and, and going down the value chain. And I think that that's a big part of the role as well is understanding that from our perspective and how that overlaps and integrates the banks and financial services providers' expectations. Um, so I guess my own role is, is very multifaceted in a way that's slightly different to a bank where the compliance role can be quite... Um, fixed. So you know, it's part business development. Um, yep. Okay. So I'll go back to when dealing with a regular service provider. That's probably the best way to do yeah. it. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So then when we're uh, outsourcing to a regulated flat service provider themselves, it, there is no diminution in standards. So we have to meet the requirements as they're relevant to our business. And so given the nature of the business we tend to do on an outsource basis, you're looking at conduct requirements, you're looking at oversight um, and governance, you're looking at reporting. You're looking at your training, your regular reading and viewing, whatever it's called in each of the financial service providers, everyone has to do that tick box of going in and reading the requirements. And sometimes compliance people are involved in developing those similarly in terms of what you have to know and, and what you have to remember, what you have to validate in terms of your own knowledge awareness. And um, your minimum competency in your fitness and probity can be very important. There are there can be a lot of CF functions involved in the context of um of the outsourced activities, there may be a requirement for people to have minimum competency qualification standards like APA and the like. Um, 
And also the upstream is very important in this role as well, because particularly in this field, in the outsourcing field, but there's a lot of changing requirements and a lot of things around due diligence and ESG and reporting and sustainability. All those new requirements coming down the track are as relevant to us as they are to our providers. So there's a, a large engagement piece and consideration piece there for me as well. Um, my own particular role is uh, multifaceted and fairly agile. And um, unlike normal kind of compliance roles in large organizations in an, in an OSP, if you're a banking expert, you know, you're part of business development as well. You're talking to your contacts and your former colleagues across the business. You're understanding what's happening on the ground. You're letting people know who you are, what you do, uh, getting a feel for what the risks and compliance issues that are out there so that you're, you may be able to help or you may be able to get on the front foot in terms of thinking about it from your own perspective. Um, also, then there's your standard sort of advisory and uh, oversight role. My own role is 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 multifaceted and and fairly agile. And um, there's a part of business development part to it, which involves me talking to my colleague, former colleagues, and 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 friends and and uh, acquaintances from the industry, just to understand what their needs are, uh, what what's going on in the world, whether there's anything we can help with, whether there's anything we need to be on the front foot with, uh, where the kind of expectations, regulatory expectations, and the industry expectations are. Um, there's an, an advisory and oversight piece. Uh, that can apply either where we're submitting a tender or an RFP um, uh, or where, you know, an issue arises, your standard sort of compliance input into that and experiential input. And that's another thing I would say to Compliance Institute members, particularly those with a long tail of experience, is don't underestimate how much your experience and the value of that experience is to any role, uh, whether it's within compliance or outside of it. There's a huge amount that you would almost take for granted that has been really beneficial, I find. Um, and then I guess there's, you know, a part of it is just around general discussion around regulatory requirements and regulatory expectations in industry and where things are going. So more kind of a strategic lens. Um, and that's at a really high level, kind of my my role, um, if that makes sense. Yeah, no, fantastic. Thanks, um, Barry. That, you know, that, that, that's really helpful. And um, I mean, most most of our listeners won't have heard of SaleSense or uh, but would deal with um OSPs like them. So could you describe the regulatory status of SalesSense and what it means for its activities? No problem. Well, I guess we're not an authorized um, financial service provider. And that is a unique, that was a unique experience for me. And that was, as you say, one of the things I was wondering, well, what would it be like going in as a compliance person? What would their standards be like? What would the expectations be like? You know, how much of this is going to be pushed? How much is it going to be pulled? Because um, we're purely an outsourced provider. So all of our all of our providers are authorized themselves, and we operate under relevant outsourcing requirements. Um, but what I was delighted to see is like the standards are effectively the same. Um, you know, we have the same customers focused culture from a conduct risk perspective, and that customer lens is so important. Like we've seen it in the UK on the FCAI side, where they're looking at the the, the customer outcomes. You know, in the, the central bank is all over, and it's very very big part of the agenda with CPC review. Um, there's a very tailored risk and control environment, like operational risk. When you have a large customer call center where you have a field sales team, you know, your conduct risk and your operational risk requirements, they have to be tailored and they have to be proper for you to function as business. Like that is absolutely required. The fitness and probity in the MCC is probably something in the financial services side that doesn't apply across the board. Yeah, so uh, from a fitness and probity perspective, um, we also have to uh, have to, you know, make sure that we're meeting the relevant requirements of people coming in the door through the gate, 
both for our partners, but also because that makes good business sense. Um, and I guess the operating environment of an OSP requires, you know, the highest standards anyway for operational resilience, continuity planning, and your IT data and cybersecurity. If you don't have those locked down from a compliance perspective, like you might as well not be in business. So whether I was here or not, whether or not we were working with financial services companies, that's an inherent part of the business. And it was really nice to see that focus. And particularly when you're when you're in the financial services world and you heard it on your last podcast, how important outsourcing and how important operational resilience are to the central bank. So working for a business where that's really, really critical anyway, is 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 it was like quite refreshing. And with your long previous career at the central bank and regulated firms, what are the challenges and similarities and, and differences in working in a regulated environment versus an OSP? From, from the similarities perspective, similarities, I guess, um, you know, customer facing activities are the same. That's the nature of the outsourcing. Uh, so, you know, good management and, and conduct should be a high bar in those spaces, wherever you work and whatever the regulatory status of your entity. So in that regard, it's very similar. Um, what I did like as well, when you're actually on the floor and you're, you're, you're dealing and you're reviewing stuff is the customer service staff, the guys who are actually dealing with the customers, um, they have the same zeal for you know wanting good customer outcomes. Like they really want customers to do well. And from working in the bank for 20 years, the one thing everyone will know and all clients officers will be familiar with is the people in the branches, the people on the phones genuinely do want customers to get good outcomes. So that was a big similarity and something I was really happy to see that it, people were coming in and they were really wearing the customer's hearts in their sleeves. Um, from a differences perspective, and particularly from a compliance officer's difference perspective, we don't deal directly with the CBI. So that's obviously a big, big difference. Um, our engagement and CBI expectations are driven through the partner. Um, and that that was a little, not, not unusual, but that was definitely a different experience. Um, I guess because of we have a very specific focus on what we're doing um, and because we have a very specific locale, it does allow us to be a lot more agile um, and in a better position to improve quickly and identify areas for improvement than you might have in a bank. Like if you think about the change processes within a very large institution with multi-departments and multi-jurisdictional and everything else. Certainly within a bank, change can happen quite slowly and addressing issues can be quite complex within the risk management structure and not because the risk management standards are lower, but there are so many layers and people and yeah. different push points involved. Yeah, um, the, governance, the governance. Absolutely. Change. And yeah. like we, yeah. we have the same governance, but it's much tighter and smaller, which means you, by nature, you, you have more agile. You don't have as many people to engage with on issues. You don't have as many different factors. There's a much more, you know, you know, close awareness of what's going on. And I guess another difference, and this is probably something that will change within banking and financial services, but certainly anyone who's worked in the last, you know, 10 years in financial services would have recognized a big stream of change at the top in terms of senior management and leadership. And there was would constantly be new CEOs, there would constantly be new new managers, there could be entire new exec teams coming in and out of organizations. And I guess a difference for me, and this could be a timing issue rather than a business issue, was it was nice to go into a business where the vast majority of the leadership had been there a very long time and understood the business from the bottom up. So that means that when you're dealing with issues and when you're looking at things and you're looking for improvements, you're able to come to solutions, you're able to come up with different ideas a lot quicker because there's a lot more inherent knowledge end to end than there would have been. Now, I do think in the last sort of five years, as the market has become more settled within banking and financial services, that there's a much better understanding uh, within the execs and with the leaderships 
um, and there's, they've built up a lot more of that experience. But it's just natural in any job. If you knew people coming from the outside all the time, they all have to learn before they get to a certain point of understanding. So that was a difference in terms of my experience of that as well. Um, so I guess those would be the, the main sort of similarities and differences I would have seen. Yeah, well, I think, Barry, you've pointed up one of the advantages of going to an outsourcer in that they they do, they're focused, you know, perhaps on one activities and they're not, they're not running a bank with you know, lots of products, um, lots of product lines and, you know, a big, you know, back office operations because you you can specialize. Um, and, you know, I always think, you know, you, um, outsourcing is risk management in itself, although it brings risk. It is a risk management. So I think you've, you've, you've shown that and that, you know, when you talked about, you know, being able to change things quickly, it's because you are specialists in, you know, in, 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 in you know, the specific uh, activity that you do. So um, what tends to be the drivers of outsourcing to an OSP that you've seen and what compliance, conduct and risk uh, concerns can, can arise in that process? Okay, um, I guess, look, there's very many reasons that can drive it, but I might, from, from my own experience and looking at it, I guess there's two, it can either be strategic or it can kind of be un, unplanned and responsive, okay? So from a strategic perspective, it might be because you want to reduce cost or it might be because you want to improve quality, right? So if you, you go to a specialist, you expect to get specialist treatment, right? So it can be one of those two different things. And I guess the, if we if we talk about the strategy of reducing costs or improving quality, the main risk and compliance you want, the driver you want to make sure you, and risk you want to address is that there's no diminution in customer service or the operational resilience or reliability. So you need to be sure that your customers are going to get the right outcomes. That they're going to get treated effectively the same or potentially better um, than they would be if they were dealing with your own staff. Um, and you need to make sure that from an IT and from a, an operational and from a premises perspective, that all those things continue to operate and are accessible um, uh, as they would normally be. Um, and I guess that, that's particularly when you're doing it to reduce costs, because when you're doing things to reduce costs, you run the risk, a higher risk of um, of those things potentially going wrong. And I guess the way I would describe it is if you were looking for a babysitter for your kids, you know, the chances are you won't automatically go with the cheapest. Maybe some parents would, but I would like to think that most of them would be looking at, you know, um, or you wouldn't be looking for the most remote kind of babysitter. You'd be looking for someone who is, you know, has quality, who's built your trust up, is reliable. They have lo local familiarity and they would be of paramount importance. And price, of course, would be a factor, but all those other aspects are equally important. And, you know, banks and financial service providers do treat their customers to an extent like their kids, like they want them to be well-treated. They want them to grow with them. They want to have that relationship with them. They want to build it over time and grow. So, you know, that is something from a compliance perspective, you really want to see that those things are there and you're not losing them. I think if it's event-driven, so if let's say you have a big surge and you suddenly can't deal with demand, and you just need people to help or you need something to help deal with that surge. Or, you know, if there's been an event or something has gone wrong and you need to fix it and you need to get people on the ground and you need to get the ground running very fast. The risks there are slightly different. So you've got an initial onboarding risk where because this was unplanned and unscheduled, you want to get it up and running and fixed as quickly as possible. So you need to make sure that, you know, it's done properly in an organized way in a timely way, but in an organized and structured way to ensure that, you know, relevant, you know, tail risks and other unexpected risks and unplanned risks aren't lost. So that requires really good risk management. Um, 
as anyone who's dealt with an incident or event, you know, a, a major or, a, a, you know, a, a, a serious event will, will understand. Um, I guess getting up and then once it is set up properly, then ensuring that that quality persists over time um, is very, very important. Um, and then you hope it improves and develops over time as well, right? Because you've built something quick and it's, nothing is ever perfect and it's always a balancing act. But once you've got up and running, you then have to try and make sure that you're not just sitting on your laurels, that you are continuously improving it and you are continuously developing it. Um, so once you get the right governance and oversight in place and reporting in place, you then that becomes like a self-fulfilling sort of virtuous circle of, of output and you improve your compliance output as well. Thanks, Barry. Um, and without giving away any, any state secrets, um, what factors should regulated financial services provider take account um, of when they're choosing a provider for the right source services and what do they look out for, the positive and the negative uh, in the due diligence and contract negotiation stage? Yeah, look, I, I, it would be, I would loathe me to be telling anybody what to do because particularly on the financial services side, A, a lot of people have been bitten by bad outsourcing, so they've learned from that. And that's a good thing. It's a good thing to, for things to have gone wrong and to develop from that. So the central bank themselves, I mean, look, we come from an era when, you know, if something was outsourced intra-group offshore, you had people at a senior level saying that's not outsourcing, right? And yeah. the central bank and the industry has moved way beyond that. Like the levels of expectation on outsourcing, whether it's internal or external, have gone massively high. So I guess the first thing I would say is for established banks and financial services providers, there does seem to be a very good understanding around what they should be looking for. Maybe for some of the newer startups and some of the guys entering the market, it's a bit more of a challenge, but the central banks... You know, they did a huge amount of work in solving those guidelines last year, and they, they've they've really sort of improved their guidance and their help around um, outsourcing. So I think what I would sort of say at a more generic level and looking at the way the industry is going, the first thing I'd say is really they should everyone should be looking at concentration risk. You can't really see what's going on elsewhere, and it's no coincidence that the central bank is moving through the different markets at the moment, getting the outsourcing returns. And like, they're not taking all that information in for nothing. They're going to be looking at that and they're going to be looking at, are there points of concentration risk? Are there points of where too much outsourcing is being done to too few people and it needs to be spread around? And even within an institution, you know, it there can be benefits to actually outsourcing to more than one partner um, because then you have a, an element of benchmarking that can happen, but also you have less of an element of, of single concentration risk, right? So that's one thing I would, I'd say they should consider. Um, realistic pricing, right? So, uh, and like anyone could say that, but in reality, good, reliable, educated staff are never cheap, right? Like that's the reality of it. If you want good people, you, you kind of have to pay. Um, the external environment and the cost of living crisis at the moment is not helping things, right? That is making it much, much harder for people to live and it's giving people much more reason to be looking at what they're earning. Um, and I think when you outsource and even with your own staff, it's the exact same. You want to have resilience. You want to have stickability. You want to have reliability. And um, so I think maybe just be a bit wary of too good to be true pricing on an outsourcing perspective. Um, and just consider the tail ends of, well, if, if the costs are reduced so much, what's the tail risk or the unexpected risk that might come with that down the line? Um, and, and how would you manage that? Um, I think that when you're choosing your OSP, you need to be looking for a partner it's a bit like a marriage right so nowadays anyway, it's not like an old irish marriage nowadays like a marriage it doesn't necessarily last forever great if it does but while it lasts what you want to be doing is basing it on shared values you want to have 
you know, respect and a dedication to working together and collaboratively. You don't want your outsourcing partnership to be a fight or a trade-off or, you know, this is what this is. You know, there has to be an element of, of mutual respect and understanding and there has to be an element of wanting to work together and you know look for an osp who actually wants to spend time with you who's willing to to listen to what you say who has something to bring to the table as well as just do what they're told you want to have that more of a kind of a mature marriage scenario rather than a than a kind of a an an orchestrated instructional kind of scenario that's my own view uh personally um and i guess one thing probably in particularly in financial services that would be look, worth looking for is look for an outsourcer who actually has knowledge and experience around financial services. Um, and I don't just say that because I'm an experienced person in financial services regulation. Um, but the benefits of that are huge. And um, particularly when it comes to things like the upstream side of things. And, um, you know, you have people, if you're dealing with a partner who actually understands the regulatory requirements, who understands what's coming down the track and they're better prepared for it, that like naturally and logically will lend itself to a much better relationship and much better working um working output uh, over time and um, so that that's what i would suggest are sort of key things to be looking at i guess a final one and look this is depends on what you're outsourcing and it depends on the nature of the work but accessibility can be important so i mean i don't know kathy if you were ever on any of the trips to, to india or to any of the other or to uk or to, to manchester or any of those other places where a lot of outsourcing happens and it's great but i think that that is a factor to consider is if you or the central bank would like to visit or, or see these things yeah. how accessible are they you know and what, what does that look and feel like um and i think that's a factor to consider again none of these things are red line factors yeah. they're all just things you need to think about yeah well, i think post pandemic that's been a big learning is um accessibility um to, to your outsourcer and when they you know you know the, the greater the distance that you know the, the bigger the risk actually now um so um how how would you define a successful osp relationship um and then how can firms successfully address issues you know well, if they think... arise during the relationship in the in the marriage yeah <laughs> get, get counseling <laughs> no uh, i think uh similarities of cultures and values is, is a key bedrock right i mean what does the central bank say all the time about the importance of culture and values and they're not saying it for the crack you know you, you can see it across the board you can see it with the banking culture board like the answer is in the title culture is really important if you get that cultural fit and it matches and um, that is really that that is the foundation stone of anything and that will be the core that drives your output and be the core that drives your deliverables and it's really really important and um, strong effective governance uh, is really important that that's embedded with regular interaction uh, and the right levels for steering so you know you're not outsourcing something to be micromanaging it you're outsourcing it because you want it to be done and done properly and competently without you necessarily seeing and doing it all the time but you do need to have that interactivity at, a, at the right level, at the right senior level. And you do need to have that level of engagement. And whether that's from, you know, your COO or your compliance, your banking person or whoever else it is, they need to be able to, 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 to work that relationship at the right level with the right seniority. And um, I think for, for it to work properly and um, having an educated and high performing workforce is really important. And um, so, you know, if that's the core of your, 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 what you're outsourcing, you know, that really will be successful in the long term. Because, like, I don't need to tell an educational body like Compliance Institute that education is important, right? So it's critical, right? Yeah. But it's not just education up front. 
training and development like if again going back to what do you want from an outsourcing service provider you want people you want stickability you want people who will stay in the job you know to get that you have to have investment in people you have to train and develop them it has to be something beyond hiring and off you go there has to be you know in an ideal scenario you'll be able to promote internally to like team your roles within the outsourcing relationship and the like so that will all yeah, and it keeps individuals themselves motivated if they feel they're being invested in and, and they're, they they themselves are gaining skills. So Yeah, well, the, yes. the, 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 the best answer is always the truth. And the truth is people feel more valued when they are invested in from a development perspective. Like that's 100% the case. So if you can do that and build that into your relationship, that will work wonders. And um, as ever, and I'm sure all of our operators colleagues would say this, strong KPIs and strong KROIs and associated regular reporting are important. If you get... If you can define your KPIs, KROIs, and your reporting cycle correctly, that will tell you what a successful OSP relationship looks like, okay? Um, and I guess effective onboarding and ongoing training of your staff and team leaders, as I say, is really, really important. Um, when you marry that all together and you have a, a collaborative feedback loop uh, and the agility to deal with queries and issues as they arise, that is, that, that's exactly what it is. Like an OSP relationship, like any relationship, you start out with a vision of what it's going to be and it evolves. And what you want is you want it to evolve for the better. It's going to change over time. There's going to be things you don't expect. There's going to be things that you want to improve. You want that to work in a collaborative and, and a positive way. Um, and I think that's at the heart of the OSP relationship, like any other relationship. Yeah. And um, as we mentioned earlier, as, as you mentioned earlier, Barry, and something that you know we, we visit actually in every podcast now, um, ESG and sustainability. And where do you see the importance of ESG in the OSP value chain? Okay, well, I guess, um, look, it's getting more important every day, you know, whether it's, you know, a legal or regulatory imperative to, to meet it or, or to meet whatever's coming down the track or whether it's just the moral imperative, you know, of doing business in a more sustainable way for us and for our generations to follow, okay? Um, no one who gets into banking and financial services does it by, for way of a get-rich-quick scheme, right? This is something we do for the long term. And just as much as you and banks will have had generations and generations, generations of customers in the past, and they want to have generations and generations of customers in the future, you also want to be able to deliver that in a way that supports those customers in the future. So I think that when you take a step back of it and you look at it holistically, ESG is should be a natural part of what you do anyway. Like it is really, really important. It just so happens now that legally and you know from a regulatory perspective, they're kind of really focusing on requirements around that. Um, but again, logically, you should be doing that anyway. And um, when you look specifically at the regulatory framework and what's coming down the tracks so, or what's already there, you've got like CRD Pillar 3 disclosures. You've got your Corporate Sustainability Reporting Directive, the CSRD. You've got your customer, your Corporate Sustainability Due Diligence Directive, CSDDD. Um, and I'm not a big fan of acronyms because they all tend to overlap and become the same thing over time. But ultimately, you know, they're all they're all coming in and, you know, that hits the value chain. Some of them are directly aimed at the value chain and outsourcing. Some of them will have to percolate down because if you're doing activities for the bank, you still have to meet their requirements and feed into them. Um, so what I would say to financial service providers and to compliance officers who are on this, who are on the, the bank financial services providers, provider side, make sure you engage with your you know, compliance, your, your OSPs early in terms of what you're thinking on terms of policies and expectations and standards. Because the other thing about ESG is 
it's not a tick box exercise. It's not a right or a wrong answer. Everyone will have their, their different standards and their different flow and what they're aiming towards. So they've got to be very clear about communicating that and understanding that and making sure there's a proper mutual understanding because otherwise, you know, it'll just end up being higgledy piggledy last minute.com, you know, which can happen in upstream. Upstream is a challenge. Change is a challenge. From an upstream perspective, like as you'd have seen when you did the um, your own small little uh, uh, briefing uh, around upstream change and how do you influence you know upstream change and uh, with, with which you did recently, um, it's a big challenge. So it's a big enough challenge internally within the FSP. Make sure you have your OSPs involved in those discussions so that even it, it, so that it, you don't get tied up towards the end. Um, and I guess from my perspective, as an as someone who's in an OS, OS uh, and it's our service provider now, to the extent that we and other OSPs are on the full foot on ESG, you know, matters that should be more attractive to FS, F, any FSP who's either looking to outsource or who's considering their existing outsourcing. So that we will continue to look at that, and we are developing that and working very hard on that. And some of that is is has been historically driven by the partners we deal with, who are very much in the space where ESG is very important as well. And some of it is because, as I say, it's the right thing to do. And if I may, Barry, I'm going to use um, what you've just been talking about on ESG matters as a shameless plug for the um, the Compliance Institute's uh, Professional Diploma in Sustainable Finance for Compliance Professionals, um, which actually I'm in the middle of at the moment. Um, it's an excellent course. So if you you, you want to get up the um, that very big learning curve, which I'm, um, uh, you know, I, I had no idea that the body of um, uh, regulation that is already around um, sustainability, uh, I would really recommend this course. Um, and you're right about the the, the acronyms. Um, there, I don't think there's any other field where acronyms have proliferated as quickly as sustainability. Um, and just for a bit of context as well for, um, for our listeners, uh, a lot of the sustainability regulation, for example, the Corporate Sustainability Reporting Directive or CSRD, um, requires uh, uh, reports um, from, from in-scope entities, which most of our, a lot of our members will be, uh, they will be caught by this. They require reporting on um, ESG factors and value chains. So um, this, is, this, is, um, and this is a major change um, and it's a major kind of upscaling in, you know, the, the, really the obligation. Not only are we reporting on our own activities, but we have to report on, on value chain as well. So. Um, that is that that that's something that that we're going to have to grapple with um, into the future. So um, so again, I'll just use that as a as a plug for that. That you know, it's an excellent course. Um, so I'd recommend those look. You know, everybody looks into it um, who has an interest in in this area because it's only going to grow. Yeah, and um, again, I, I two thumbs up to that as well. Absolutely, um, and I'd also sort of tag on to that. If any of your your um, compliance institute members watching this. If, if you guys are the PCF under the new CR regime, who's going to be nominated responsible for outsourcing, um, or if you're engaging with those that PCF as part of your compliance advisory role, really, really important for them to understand these obligations and for them to understand what's actually happening with their outsourcers, who they are, what they're doing, and because they are on the hook under CR yeah. for that activity. Um, and to the extent that the ESG requirements then will roll into the regulatory requirements or our regulatory requirements, that goes hand in hand with that. So this could yeah. be a really important course for them as well, even if they're not in compliance themselves. Yeah, exactly. Suggest. Exactly. And 
Um, I think there's two prescribed responsibilities at the minute that are sustainability related, um, if, if I remember correctly. Um, yeah, so, so yeah, really, really important. Um, so we're coming to the end now, uh, Barry, and um, trying to look into the future now. What do you see as the main developments in the short to medium term in outsourcing? Yeah, and look, this brings me back to my, my sort of upstream hat, which I always liked. I'm always looking forward. Uh, so <laughs> I love it. Um, there's always loads. So yeah, because change change changes where it's at. Uh, if you're if you're not changing, you're 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 going backwards. So you're still moving. But uh, okay. uh, look, OSPs themselves all have their direct upstream agenda, independent of financial service providers. So the ISOs, um, which are also an, a very important part of standard setting outside of regulated activity, because they effectively set the standard. Um, now, they are part important within the regulatory focus as well as part of the tendering process, uh, as was discussed in the last uh, call uh, or the last um, your last podcast. They, they do come into it, um, particularly the changes that are coming in under the information security requirements under ISO 27001. From a payments perspective, uh, the PCI DSS standards that are, are changing, version 4 is coming in. That's important as well to get on top of. And as you say, CSRD and CSDDD, really, really critical. Um, from the central bank's perspective, as I say, they, they're reviewing those outsourcing registers. They're reviewing all the, the, the reporting in terms of all the outsourcing that's going on. Stuff will come out of that. They also, they didn't issue the, you know, the report, the consolidated guidance on outsourcing and the sorry, consolidated requirements on outsourcing. And they didn't issue the, the, the guidance on operational resilience for the crack. There is a pattern on this. They will issue the requirements. They will give time for the to embed. They will review and then they will react. So that cycle is ongoing right now, whether people realize it or not. So there will be output from that. So any dear CEO letters or any sort of directions or regulatory engagement that come out will be quite important, I think, in the short and medium term in terms of um, what comes out of those outsourcing registers and their reviews of the, the, the guidance and requirements. The CBC review, really important. Um, I might do my own plug. I did a little paper just to give people... Uh, you know, some alternative or different approaches of thinking around what's happening with CPC review and some some factors based on the initial uh, DP, which has now been responded to, or at least an update has been given by the central bank. So CBI, the CPC uh, review is hugely important, as we saw when they did their uh, initial DP. Um, and I'll do my own plug here. Um, I did do a general sort of considerations paper for uh, compliance officers in particular and other members of the industry to review if you want to have a look at that. It's on the news section of, of the SaleSense website, www.salesense.ie. We're seeing the central bank now starting to provide updates and we're seeing the submissions that people have made on that, um, which is really interesting. So that in the short to medium, maybe that's more medium term, but look, you can't sit back and wait for that to happen. You, you've got to be the change you want to see. So we really should be trying to think about what's coming and, and how we can do things better before we're told this is how you have to do it. And that applies across the industry, whether you're an OSB or an FSB. Um, and as I said earlier, SEER is a really, really important part of this and how that's developing and how people, you know, recognize, understand and take control of their requirements and exposure is a really, really important short term consideration, I think, for for the PCFs in particular out there. Um, the FSBs have their own upstream agenda. Again, I'd be loath to tell all the upstream risk officers on there what your agenda looks like. You're probably sick of looking at it yourselves and trying to manage between your red, ambers and greens, you know, and, and figure out how things are going. Um, obviously, you've got DORA coming down, although to be fair and like give credit where it's due, central bank's operational uh, resilience requirements were very, very far ahead of what's coming down the EU. And I personally believe 
mean, remains to be seen, but I personally believe that what the central bank has done is put Ireland, Ireland and Irish FSPs in really good stead for Dora. And um, that doesn't mean you still don't have to impact assess it and do everything else. But I think we're in a really good place. Um, and the CBI should credit for that. Um, CSRD and CDD coming in. Um, I think, uh, I think as well, another short to medium term thing that people need to look at is really onshoring versus offshoring. It's always been a bone of contention for the central bank and what they expect. Um, and I think the value, the risk and the reward around that, I think is something that everyone, everyone should always be looking at it anyway, right? But I think particularly at the moment, as the central bank is looking at, at, at all this stuff and as OSPs are considering where they're going, where this is going, things around modern slavery and all those other aspects where there are different risk factors that come with offshoring versus onshoring. And um, I think that that's a really important consideration. Thanks, Barry. So that takes us uh, to the end of our discussion. And I've really enjoyed our, our chat here. Um, it's been a really wide ranging discussion. Not only have you taken us through what it's it's like to um, you, your career and as I said your very interesting career arc and how you've ended up where you where you are you've also demonstrated how eminently transferable your compliance skills are and your skill set as a compliance professional and um, you know how, how they can help grow your career and I think that's going to be a really important message for, for our listeners um, and then you've taken us through um, you, you know lots of uh, you know what what does good outsourcing look like how to manage issues and you've given us a little glimpse into what your thoughts are in the future. So a really wide ranging, and I think listeners are going to really benefit from listening to this. Um, and, so thank and, you very much. No problem, Kathy. And look, and, and I do genuinely mean this for any compliance officer out there. And I would, anyone who knows me knows this is a hundred percent me. If you just, if there's something you've heard on this, where you think I'd like, that sounds interesting. I'd like to talk a bit more about that. Just pick up the phone to me. Just okay. get me on LinkedIn, give me a shout. Uh, details are on that paper that you're going to send around on, on the CPC. I love talking compliance and happy to spend any time sharing my thoughts for what they're worth, you know, and uh, yeah. uh, if people want to do that, I'd be more than happy to do yes, so. Yes, and, and I, I, given that I know Barry, I know that's a genuine offer. So um, thank you for that, um, Barry. So um, so thanks, Barry, for sharing your insights and, and expertise. Thanks to you for listening to the Compliance Files podcast brought to you by the Compliance Institute. I do hope that you find the podcast interesting and useful. And we would be very grateful if you would review or rate this podcast. And until the next episode, goodbye. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Compliance Files. Make sure you subscribe to the podcast on whatever platform you are listening to ensure you don't miss out on future episodes.